0: Here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E.
1: Baker. This podcast episode is brought to you by Merck Research. Merckresearch.com, M E R K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can say that I get a lot of value out of them. Merck Research is different from other research, which usually just cherry picks all positive or all negative charts and then falls into the trap of confirmation bias. Merck Research provides an intellectually consistent approach by going through a consistent set of relevant data and then putting it through a consistent set of frameworks, which is then summarized in a checklist and in a concise written summary. Their monthly economic and market data review provides an excellent overview of the macro landscape. It's all compiled in one place in easy to interpret chart books with written analysis. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer and get a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website merckresearch.com forward slash contrarian. That's Merck spelled M-E-R-K. Or you can log on to merckresearch.com, sign up for a regular subscription, and enter the code CONTRARIAN at checkout. To take advantage of this free offer. Now, on to today's episode. Barry Knapp, Ironsides Macroeconomics. Thank you so much for rejoining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. This is, by my count, your third appearance on the podcast, um, adding you to a rare group of individuals who have been on three times. You were, of course, the original guest on the pilot. Uh, for those who go back into the history of the podcast, which may as well have been a different lifetime back in early 2019, quite a lot has changed. But the reason I wanted to have you on is obviously you, are, I think of you as kind of a the, like the contrarian's contrarian in that you are always kind of there to lend a voice of reason when people are kind of, and and things are kind of spinning out of control and, and this is what had us way back in 2019, where people t- were talking about an, uh, a recession and yield curve inversion. And there was, believe it or not, a lot of fear, which you said at the time, quite correctly, was overplayed. So anyway, so but I, I recently or, or just uh, today actually saw this piece that you guys had written uh, the, um, over the weekend, I guess, about policy tremors. And you go through here some very real potential items of risk or areas to watch with the new Biden administration, which is going to take over tomorrow as we record this on Tuesday, January 19. So why don't we start there? Why don't you talk to me about what you can, what you view as these potential policy tremors and then let's take it from there.
0: Sure. Um... To, to set that up, I, I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the tailwinds that I think are driving asset prices higher and sort of a broad risk-on environment, strong equity returns, because those do directly relate to the policy risks that will follow. And those those um, the the one of the core points of differentiation in my view around the economic outlook is that the recession that we're rebounding from as it pertains to global trade and manufacturing, um, capital spending and prices, this whole reflation theme is actually from a two-year recession. And that two-year recession was very specific, but it was caused by the trade war and the disruption of global supply chains And it permeated out into global manufacturing, global trade and capital spending because business confidence had received this big surge coming out of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But then basically uh, President Trump sort of shot himself in the foot with the trade war and the impact on business confidence and capital spending. So when you think about your know, prices in commodity prices rebounding, um, they are rebounding from this global trade and manufacturing recession. When you look at ISM new orders above 65 months in a row, but customer inventory is still in the upper 30s on a diffusion index basis, right? 50 is break even. You can see that the recovery is not just from the pandemic. It is also from this trade war that began in mid 2018. Now, when you start them thinking about you know, policy and the policy risks. And I'll come back to the Biden administration and and that piece of it, because I do actually think that that's the first proximate risk. But the, the one that um, the market got fixated on at the be- sort of end of the prior week after the Georgia elections, around the time of the payroll report and through the beginning of last week until Fed officials um, mitigated that risk, at least temporarily to some point, is, you know, what's going on in the treasury market and the rate curve. And it's it's important to differentiate between the inflation component of rates, you know, inflation break evens, which have moved from, we'll call it one and three quarters around the time when we got vaccine efficacy trial results to two Point one percent on 10-year uh, break-evens today. So those inflation expectations, market-implied inflation expectations have moved out. As long as that's driving yields higher, the Fed's very comfortable with that, right? They want to see higher market-implied inflation. They're worried about deflation risk. Um, to an
1: extent, right? I mean, at to, some point, yeah. To
0: an extent. And that's okay. exactly that's exactly uh, the point here. So, you know, just to retrace a little bit further, and then I'll get to the current situation, When the yield curve inverted uh, relentlessly through 2018, or methodically, if you will, through 2018, a lot of that was driven by this global trade and manufacturing um, weakening initially because of the trade war, and then ultimately global trade and manufacturing recession. And why I say that is because global trade growth contracted in 2019 Uh, While global GDP was positive, that's the first time that's happened since China was integrated into global supply chains. You had negative, typically trade would follow growth or growth would follow trade. They'd be moving concurrently. But in this case, trade went negative, but growth was still positive. So that's why you can identify it to that. There's a couple of elements that really impact the yield curve to a greater extent than most investors expect. One is prior to the global financial crisis, um, global trade credit. Probably the biggest players in that market were French banks. They extended a tremendous amount, so a lot of the trade credit was euro-denominated. Um, that ended after the global financial crisis, and some eighty percent of glo- the supply of global trade credit for you know Mexico or Taiwan or whoever to get credit to produce products to sell into the global trade market, export market, uh, that is dollar denominated. So the BIS has done some good work on this that's shown that that currency channel, that credit channel is actually has a greater effect on places like Mexico than does currency competitiveness. So typically you'd think, okay, the peso falls, Mexican products are cheaper, they'll sell more. But in fact, that's being offset by this tightening of credit when the dollar goes up. 20 Mid-2014 to 16 were great examples. Mexican exports fell, even though, you know, the currency weakened and demand in the U.S. was picking up their biggest customer. They still, because they couldn't get the trade credit. The other issue related to that is the global supply of safe assets is now some 80% uh, dollar denominated as well. And that's an increase from the global financial crisis there was a paper by uh, Stanford professor Krishna Murthy in the 2018 um, Jackson Hole Symposium. So the dollar, you know, we have a, a contraction like a global trade recession. The dollar strengthens and trade credit gets shut off. Now we're on the other side of that. And and, and final point is when we had the trade tariff tweets in May and in, in uh, early August of 2019, the the curve inverted really sharply, and that was the recession talk. But people asked me, well, is this forecasting the US recession? I said, no, it's reflecting the global trade recession. So here we are, now we're on the other side of this, and we're recovering not just from the pandemic, but we are recovering from
1: the, the global trade recession. And your dog is recovering as well, as we can hear.
0: My my dog is is uh, it's getting close to dinner time for oh, okay. a ninety pound Labrador Retriever. Right? Nice,
1: he's relentless. But uh, <laughs> poor guy, you can hear him. Yeah, Maybe uh, Oliver, wait. Him. <laughs> All right.
0: So so this is where this is where we're 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 at as we start to come out of this. You would expect that reflation dynamic to be all that much more pronounced uh, because of the fact that it's a two-year recession, because it relates to global trade. But um, so now as we come out of this global trade and pandemic recession and prices, the reflation story, prices start to rebound. We have to keep in mind that we're we're not just, you know, when the Fed decides they're going to normalize policy. They're not just normalizing from the pandemic, but also from the trade recession, because the Fed response to all this yield curve inversion was 75 basis points of rate cuts in the summer of 2019, which they described as you know, a mid-cycle adjustment. Now, right. so that there, here we are. Now we start to think about, okay, well, how's this likely to unfold in 2021? Back to my inflation, you know, or breakdown uh, of the move in 10-year treasury yields. If they're moving up because inflation break-evens are widening from one and three quarters to a little over 2%, as has been the case since the, uh, we got the vaccine efficacy uh, data and started giving out vaccines, the Fed's pleased. As these inflation break-evens and expectations move out from, you know, one and three quarters to two, even to two and a quarter, the Fed is is probably pleased and is patting themselves on the back. Listen, we're you know we're mitigating the deflation risk. As they move from two and a quarter to two and a half, some starting with some of the regional bank presidents, they'll become increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that inflation expectations may be moving too far too fast. Um, the Fed's taken a lot of comfort from the idea that they didn't create inflation last business cycle. The monetary arguments are completely different, right? All the debt resided uh, last cycle. The debt was in the household sector at its highest level to disposable income and GDP ever. And the debt was in the financial sector. And so those two dynamics impaired both the supply and demand for credit. The supply side was banks needed to, you know, to, to delever, and they also had a much More hawkish regulatory environment. So they were unable really to to lend money and they didn't want to lend money. And the household sector was way over leveraged. So there was no demand for credit. Well, this go around, neither of those two things is true. In fact, it's the antithesis and demand for credit strong is evidenced by the housing boom that's getting going. All the debt is at the government level. Well, debt at the government level is very different than debt in the private sector. And the typical response is to try and reflate your way out of it. You tax your way out of it, that won't work, then you reflate your way out of it. So what I would expect to happen is as these inflation break-evens move through two and a quarter to two and a half, assuming that they do, that's my expectation is they will. Again, because of the the double-barreled recovery, if you you will. Um, Then Fed officials start to get uncomfortable and start to talk about policy normalization. When that happens, real rates start to move. And it's the real rate component the tip yields that really triggers these risk-off events. Right. So the most acute one was 2013 in the taper tantrum. Mm-hmm. But in 2018, when the Fed was shrinking their balance sheet, we had a 30 basis point real rate spike in January. You also had volatility move up because the Fed was allowing their mortgage portfolio to shrink. Uh, Then you had another one in September when the Fed reached the maximum caps on their balance sheet runoff. The ECB was tapering. Bank of Japan was loosening yield curve control. By the way, there's some talk about Bank of Japan uh, loosening their yield curve control. Again, Reuters Hmm. released a story about this because of concerns about bank profitability. So when you get to that point where that happens and you shock real rates out, they go 30 or 40 basis points higher quickly, that will start a Fed policy normalization related correction. Um, equities. before the global financial crisis, every cycle had one of those, right? At the point when the Fed um, becomes comfortable that the economies re- uh, reached escape velocity, you know, they start to normalize policy. Equities typically sell off 8% over the course of six weeks or so, and then stabilize and recover. Last cycle, we had eight of these, most of them related to asset purchase programs, but the end of zero interest rates, start of the rate hike cycle, uh, we had eight of these different normalization-related corrections, and the average equity market decline was more like 14%, Hmm.
1: right?
0: It's just that makes sense. Was that
1: the Bernanke Fed? Was that the-
0: it, well, Bernanke Fed, Yellen Fed, and then yeah, you know, okay. ultimately yeah. Powell Fed during the runoff, right? right? So the end of QE1, the end of right. QE two, the end of Operation Twist, QE3, uh the tapering, the end of zero interest rates, and then the balance sheet runoff. And right. so okay. um, and that, you know, the one in September of 2018. Led to the Q, what I call the QT crash or quantitative tightening crash, you know, in in the fourth quarter of 2018. So, you know, do we get to one of those this year? Most probably we will because, you know, we will get those inflationary expectations pushing out and it will make Fed officials uncomfortable and rates will shock higher. So the one that occurred after the Georgia elections, I think, is a little bit misplaced because the Fed is not ready to start normalizing policy, nor does the market really have um, the magnitude of fiscal stimulus correct, right? Which kind of brings us to the whole Biden administration right. yeah. and,
1: and proposition. Before we go there, let's talk through this a little bit more. The the Fed, the how close are we? Do you think to the Fed getting some kind of awareness around needing to normalize rates?
0: Uh, I would. I've been assuming that it's a mid-year event before we get the first serious tremor from that. Although yeah. we had a little bit of, like I said, a sneak preview yeah. after the Georgia elections because real rates moved 16 basis points in the course of a week. And then Powell and a number of others came out and said, no, 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 you Clarita, we're not going to taper this year. Yeah. You know, forget it.
1: Yeah. Um, and that was the other thing is that they've been consistent with, you know, I mean Powell famously said he's not even thinking about thinking about thinking about normalizing rates. Um, and so that they they they've been consistent with that message. Right. Well, now they've also Powell has also shown that he can change course pretty quickly, as we saw in late 2018, early 2019. Um, so yeah, but there's there's that to look out for too. Yeah,
0: that I mean that that's right. And, and the rate piece, even though of the rate cuts, 75 basis points of that is related to the uh, the trade war, as I said. Right. The first tremors will come from the asset purchase program. And Uh um, one of the things to watch here, which is a little inside baseball, but but important is the mix of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities, because they do run the risk of turning the agency mortgage-backed securities market into the JGB market. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is basically making it untradeable. Um, They're buying more than 100% of net supply of agency mortgage-backed securities, If they start really degrading the liquidity of that market, they may have to shift away from mortgages to more treasuries. Now, okay, you could say, well, what's the net effect on duration? Not that much. It has a big effect on volatility because the Fed buying mortgages is basically them. mitigating the number one source of interest rate volatility in the market, which is prepayment risk on 30 year fixed rate mortgages. So now they're buying a hundred percent of new supply, net supply. They own almost all the two and a half percent agency MBS mortgages in the threes, you know, rates move up a little bit and they slow their buying. And then all of a sudden vols back in the market and these moves get exacerbated. Hmm.
1: Um, but it's really. How me- often and where do they announce those purchases?
0: Well, um, they, they, in the last FOMC meeting, they made the dollar amount explicit for okay. the first time. They uh-huh. had been saying we're going to buy at the same pace, which was 80 billion of Treasuries and 40 billion of mortgages a month, but they'd never actually said the number. Oh, they said the number in the last meeting. It's on the statement. Um, so now they've they've hardened their guidance a little bit around the asset purchase program. Remember that was one of the things that upset the market back in the September FOMC meeting was the failure to extend the guidance that they have on rate policy to the guidance on asset purchases. They were trying to maintain flexibility. They've sort of hardened it. They said certain things need to happen, but they haven't really said what those things are. Like I said, if inflation expectations really move out a lot, then you'll have more regional presidents saying, wait a minute, maybe we ought to be slowing our asset purchases here. Mm -hmm. I I don't think the Fed really believes that they're having a lot of economic impact. They think it helped market functioning, but, you know, Rosengren was asked about this last week, Boston Fed president, and he said, yeah, okay. Um, You know, mortgage purchases are actually helping uh, cheapen mortgages and drive the housing boom. Well, okay, but you know, house prices are increasing at double-digit rates. Is that really what you want at
1: this point? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. okay. Um,
0: so right. <laughs> it's going to get it's going to get a little dicey for them. I mean, house prices would be another thing to watch if they, right. they continue to rise through the spring selling season, and we're talking about twelve percent HPI.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know how right.
0: the Fed keeps going in that environment. You know, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're either. So, okay cool so that's the monetary side of things right. now let's talk fiscal and biden
0: i guess i'd begin by saying you know two weeks ago when i looked at my screen after the georgia election and all my inflation trades overweights in materials and now energy and financials and um uh, industrials were all just exploding and and um, you know you could see bitcoin just in fuego and all and i thought well okay i'm I'm clearly bullish on this reflation thesis, but it relates more to the business cycle than this idea that we're going to have a huge Pelosi-Palooza spending plan. And um, when you start going through the details of the $1.9 trillion, we'll call it opening offer by the Biden administration, and you start thinking about the calculus associated with this, um, it, it doesn't certainly doesn't add up to 1.9 trillion. And there's a, you know, there's a number of sort of subtleties around this that I don't think the market totally appreciates. One is there are a couple of key elements to it that are very important political planks for the Democratic Party. The minimum wage, hike in the minimum wage and transfers to state and local governments that are likely to get serious opposition from the Republicans even though minimum wage polls pretty well, and it was approved in Florida with 62% in a referendum and Florida's voted for, for Trump, um, still there's not very strong Republican support for that. There's probably a lot of op- mostly opposition to it. Those, ele- those items are likely not eligible for reconciliation, right? So the whole reconciliation calculus is, If the Democrats can't get 10 Republican senators to agree uh, and to get over the filibuster proof majority in the Senate, they then need to use reconciliation and the parliamentary rules around reconciliation don't allow all these items necessarily to be included. Reconciliation being they could pass it with 50 votes plus uh, Vice President-elect Harris casting the deciding vote. That also means if you go the reconciliation route, that it needs to be paid for over the 10 year CBO forecasting horizon, right? So the Joint Center on Taxation, JCT will need to score it. They'll need to find offsetting revenues. Well, how do you get offsetting revenues? You pull forward the Biden tax plan. When he gave this speech last week, he proposed it that we're gonna spend $1.9 trillion. I'm gonna get Republicans to agree and we won't need to pay for it. But later on, we're going to do infrastructure. We're going to pay for it with tax hikes. Yellen got quizzed about tax hikes this morning. Chances are you won't get, depending on, you know, if the Democrats want, were willing to bring their offer all the way down to about $500 billion, they might be able to get enough Republicans to take them to the point where they don't need reconciliation. If they want a trillion or more, chances are they need you know, to go the re- reconciliation route, in which case a couple of things get kicked out, but it also means the tax hikes get pulled forward. Mm-hmm. So therein lies the real rub of all this, which is the market tends to overestimate the, we'll call it Keynesian sp- spending multiplier on economic activity from government spending. And they tend to it tend, the market tends to underestimate the negative impact of tax hikes or negative multiplier of tax hikes. Uh, even in Europe, this was true, you know, go back to the 2011 uh, fiscal stabilization plans in France, Germany, or not, not Germany, France, Italy, and and um,
1: uh, Spain.
0: Excuse me. Right. And and the IMF told them, okay, your VAT tax hikes will probably have a 0.5 or 0.6 negative multiplier, people keep spending. Um, those spending multipliers were more like negative one and a half. So, you know, a tax hike at this point in the cycle is a little dicey proposition. Mm. So
1: Yeah. I'll just say on the minimum wage, I mean, isn't that just kind of like a negotiating thing they're throwing out there? I mean, that's the commentary that I've seen that they don't because you would need Democrat and Republican. Well no no you yeah. I mean you I mean there's a question if even all 50 Democrats would get on board there.
0: Yeah I I think it's I I think that one's likely to get knocked down. Yeah. The state and local government piece though right they're gonna you know that was obviously The big sticking point on the stimulus negotiations all fall was was that along with liability, but they could have negotiated away liability. So that state and local government piece. And then there's also another uh, number of elements to this that are really critical, which is what you do on the unemployment insurance front Mm. will determine the velocity of the labor market recovery. So I was on Uh, Kelly Evans show on CNBC back in August, debating this with a Rutgers professor when we were hitting the fiscal cliff and the $600 of extra unemployment insurance, which the CBO had determined was meant that two thirds of the people receiving that were making more money than they were going to be making if they were working. Right. And so it was a real disincentive to work. And you know the democratic position at that point was, we're gonna hit a fiscal cliff and, a, and growth is gonna fall off a cliff and we're gonna have much slower labor market recovery. The opposite happened, right. right? Because you created the incentive to go back to work. And the basis of my argument around that at the time was, if you go back to last cycle, we took uh, unemployment insurance, which is typically 27 weeks, we extended it to 99 weeks, and we rolled that all the way until the end of 2013. And so we had a very tepid labor market recovery, particularly for less skilled workers, less educated workers until that ended at the end of 2013. Then you had the strongest year for the labor market in terms of total job growth, uh, unemployment rates for less skilled workers plunged, job openings exploded. So it was one of these, you know, demand makes its own supply kind of arguments. And the strongest year for the whole, the labor market for all of last business cycle Was the fifth year of the recovery, which typically you'd expect to happen in the first, right? Mm. So they want to, the proposal now is to expand that payment to $400 and not have it just go through March, but go all the way through September. If you assume that we sort of at the state level sort out our vaccine distribution, and um, we've obviously had. Or likely had something like 200 million people with some form of antibodies in them because most surveil or seroprevalence studies show there's eight times as many eight to ten times as many infections as diagnosed cases, right? So, you know, you start to get a much um, slower rate of infection later this spring, and if that's indeed the case, but yet people are getting paid $400 extra a week the incentive to go back and look for work is not that great. And that slows the labor market recovery and the velocity of the recovery. So interesting. that's another sort of element to how this, this whole policy dynamic works and whether mm. it really is the panacea that the market believes it is. Mm. So when I talk one of it, the other policy tremor pieces here is, is this idea that the, Repub- the Democrats will likely ask for more than the Republicans are willing to give. Right. And if that's the case, and they are forced to go the reconciliation route, and Vice President-elect Biden has said, we don't wanna go the reconciliation route, but we will go the re- reconciliation route if we need to, then that brings forward the tax hikes and all this euphoria about government stimulus, and I keep jokingly referring to it as Pelosi-palooza, um, you know, the market kind of has a rude awakening about all that. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's another policy, you know, that's another policy tremor. That is most likely, if we're going to have a correction anytime in the near term, that's the most likely cause of it. One other piece I should add, actually, is on these four, the $1,400 checks, there is actually a higher probability of those checks getting pushed through because of the weakened state of the... Republican Party at this point, uh, that was a key issue in the Republicans losing both of those Georgia races. When the President came out and advocated for the extra checks and kind of left the two Democratic senators with their, I don't know, down on that one, right? And and so you may actually get Republicans to agree to that. It doesn't appear to be very good economics. Even Larry Summers is saying it's not very good economics. There was an NBER study about how the last stimulus checks were spent. Mm. Um, it was a Berkeley professor, Chicago professor, and Harvard professor. So pretty broad political spectrum there. And they determined that 20% of it was spent, um, 50% of it was saved, and 30% of it was used to pay down debt. Um, okay. There is a higher propensity to spend it at the lower income or unemployed level. So you could make an argument that you could give those checks, but you should lower the income level or or, uh, require that people are unemployed at some specific date in order to get it. But were those checks to go through, um, I would not be surprised. This isn't a forecast, but um, it's, it's a possibility for sure. I would not be surprised if you didn't see a lot of the speculative parts of the market really take off.
1: Um, Even another more little, than already has, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, another little version of what happened uh, last summer, and, you know, we're getting a little bit in Bitcoin and some of these other markets, uh, and you get a speculative blow-off under the idea that that money flows into Robinhood accounts, yeah. you know, and then it uh, flows into the market. I mean, put call ratios on speculative stocks are really skewed towards call buying, and, right. Um, index put skew is expensive. So the overall market structure isn't terrible from a vol perspective, but the speculative interest in some of these, we're using Zoom, right? The Zooms of sure. the world kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that I could see um, getting some sort of speculative blow off and then perhaps mm. a nasty reversal mm, um, mm, as a consequence mm. of those checks. But-
1: right. You
0: know, right. it's just another element of it. And that would be something of a policy term, I suppose.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. that is all right, there's, there's a lot here. One thing we haven't really talked about yet is trade. And I noticed um, that I saw some piece about all the, uh, uh, you know, all the executive actions by Trump that Biden was going to roll back on immigration on. Um, there's a couple others. But but one of the what it didn't mention at all climate, of course, but what it didn't mention was China, China right. tariffs. And there was a lot of speculation here that he would be more friendly towards China than Trump had been, and that could potentially undo some of these tariffs, which by the way, he doesn't he doesn't need any kind of congressional approval for. He can just do it also, right? Right. And that has not been that is not on, on the list. Um have you thought about that at all? About how uh, China's policy towards I'm sorry, um, Biden's policy towards China and tariffs and how that might unfold?
0: Uh, I have for sure. Um, There is no indication that he's willing to roll back the tariffs at this point. Um, There are indications that he might um, re-engage in TPP. Uh, So were he to re-engage in TPP and decide we're going to join TPP, which would be a pretty tough go, um, you know, to get congressional approval of it. Yeah. And well, at that point, I suppose it would open the door for rolling back some of those China tariffs. Um, I, I think anybody speculating that particularly that tech piece of the trade war is going to get unwound anytime soon uh, is, is pretty off base. Yeah. However, some of the other tariffs on you know goods and agricultural products and things like that, I, I could see that getting um, reversed under some scenarios where maybe they'll push for WTO reform, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for example. Mm-hmm. And were they to get WTO reform and decide we're going to re-engage with WTO, then that would be the cover that would be provided to start rolling these tariffs back. But mm-hmm. I, I can't see that as being a near-term consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think More likely, we've just we've entered into a period where um, it's likely that global supply chains are gonna get restructured from just in time to just in case anyway. I can't imagine that the country wants to find ourselves in a position ever again where we have to go to China for PPE. Um, That's right, yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I was in the deglobalization camp for a long time. I thought, um, you know, Trump was... Just that, in a way, just a product of what had happened, and he was inevitable that we were going to get some leader like that who was going to push back on trade. Um, and I don't see any easy way to to reverse the the frictions that mm-hmm. exist in in that relationship yeah. soon. So.
1: Yeah, it's kind of surprising how uneventful it's all been, though. Like trade continues, and you know, asset markets are, are doing quite all right worldwide. So I guess that may speak to more of the, well, who knows?
0: This is one of the things that um, Treasury Secretary to be, I don't know if you call her elect, because she <laughs> yeah, didn't right. get Treasury Secretary to be Yellen has pointed out is that um, markets adjust to this, right? Yeah, and yeah. so that's part of my reflationary idea with commodity prices is that, you know, you had a 10% drop in the Chinese renminbi in the summer of 2018 when we put 10% tariffs on them. Hmm. basically mitigated the whole thing Hmm. and you had drops in commodity prices. So from China's perspective, soybeans weren't any more expensive than they had been. Hmm. You went to 25% tariffs and it was on a lot of intermediate goods and you started clogging up uh, the process that was problematic, but quite frankly, us industrial companies have moved away from this idea that you manufacture in China and sell to the rest of the world years ago. I mean, Honeywell, you know, at Davos being interviewed by Becky Quick said, no, our model is local, locally sourced, right? right? We manufacture in the U.S. to sell in the U.S. And really, there's only one big company still doing that. And um, it's named, right, it's named after a fruit. You know, like, <laughs> and, and eventually, Apple's going to have to, I mean, they've already started to move to India and places like that, but right. they're going to have to find a way to not put themselves at such risk because, right particularly when unit growth isn't as strong and if margins were to start to come under pressure, which you assume they would over time, right? Products yeah, mature, yeah. then you can't really afford to have, you know, Modi wake up one day and go, nope, you know, guess yeah, what? Yeah. You, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. going to, there's f- trade frictions now. So yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah um, definite risks there. No question. Yeah. All right. Um, what, what else is, is on the horizon as far as potential um, hiccups? Uh you know dollar weakness i mean I, that's not really a concern if anything that's probably good for global trade right like um yeah yeah
0: the good, the the dollar has been you know and it's a, it's a fascinating topic right because you know the bitcoin crowd thinks that the dollar is yeah. in this crisis mode <laughs> um in fact what i believe happened through you know from the low point or high point in the dollar but low point in the pandemic and and risk markets was you know there was a flight to safety, the demand for safe assets, the tightening of trade credit, all those things drove the dollar up. And then as things eased, the dollar came off. And so mm-hmm. you really just had a, an easing of the safe haven bid. And same thing mm-hmm. that happened in 2008 and 2009. Um, I think that the dollar will weaken through the course of the year. You know, We've had a little bit of a tightening and dollar bounce, but I think it will weaken through the course of the year um, Particularly against the yen and the euro.
1: Okay. And,
0: and my reason for thinking that is that um, monetary policy in the in the Europe European region, region, ECB policy, and BOJ policy are actually counterproductive, and because they've got negative rate policy, um, because of all the asset purchases and the regulatory environment, particularly in Europe bank profitability is really struggling. So the credit channel is clogged and that policy is counterproductive. In the US, that's not true. There's $1.4 trillion in additional bank cash assets. As the economy recovers, demand for credit picks back up. You're going to see the velocity of money increase, the money multiplier increase here. And as I described a little bit earlier, you have a very different debt situation than you had last cycle. So I think monetary policy will prove much more expansive in the US than in Europe or Japan, even with the same amount of asset purchases, you know, relative to the size of the economy or whatever other metric. Mm. So, that will put some downward pressure on the dollar through the course of the year. At some point, uh, we may very well reach, you know, the point where it becomes counterproductive and people worry about more about a dollar crisis. I don't really think that's what's going on. I think it's just relative monetary policy and general easing right now. I do think later in the cycle um, that single biggest contributor to the current account deficit, right, for many years that the factor that swung the current account deficit around was energy. And that was when we were running big energy deficits. We're no longer doing that, right? So it's all trade and product. And if I'm right about global supply chain adjustment, adjustment, our trade deficit will start to shrink just because businesses risk manage differently and can't take the volatility. Transportation costs have gone up a lot. Relative energy prices, nat gas in Asia versus nat gas here. Uh, productivity adjusted labor costs have converged to a point. All those things will start to shrink the trade deficit, and that will put upward pressure on the dollar. That's a later in the cycle after this initial recovery in global trade from the trade war in the pandemic scenario. So
1: okay, you
0: now but but listen, if we get one of those real rate shocks that I talked about earlier, the dollar will go up, right? Yeah. And you'll just see all those reflationary trades get unwound really yeah. quickly. So it goes from being an equity market correction to just a general risk-off event because of, you know, those other financial condition contributors like mm-hmm. the dollar. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's out there. But again, I think that's probably more mid-year than sure, sure. the near term.
1: All right. Okay. Cool. In closing, maybe um, I'm curious. Uh, we saw dollar week, you know, versus yen and, and euro. Any other favorite asset classes you care to submit this year?
0: We're still fairly early in the business cycle, so I'm, I'm reluctant to get. You know, I've been bullish on the equity market f- from the lows. Uh, I moved fairly quickly into cyclical sectors. Industrials have been outperforming tech since August. I downgraded tech in August for the first time in about a decade uh, to a market weight. And my idea is that the benefits of digitization movement to the cloud will migrate from the producers of that technology to the consumers of that technology. Much like in the 90s, we built up a whole bunch of capacity, fiber optics, cable, and the like. And then tech was a market performer at best in the 2000s. And it was of all the beneficiaries of it, media and the like, that started to benefit. So that's sort of my broader equity market position. But from a a longer-term strategic perspective, for me, the right analog for what's happening now in the broad political economy is the 1960s and the early 1960s. And some people have called this the roaring 20s, and I've pushed back on that and said, no, in the 50s, the Fed was very focused on inflation, Uh, JFK came in with a bunch of Keynesian economists in the administration. Walter Heller was his head of the CEA. Uh, They pushed Keynesian economists into the Fed and the focus shifted to the labor market. Um, This sort of started a long drawn out process that led to inflation later on, but it wasn't until roughly 1966. And so what had happened with the equity market was the PE had been seven at the end of World War II. It was 20 by 1960. It stayed at 20 until 1966. Hmm. But earnings growth accelerated from eight or 9% through the 50s when we had the series of recessions to 15 to 16% until 1966. Then you had an earnings recession and inflation really started to pick up. So the way I'm, I'm trying to characterize what's likely to happen in the equity market through the first part of this business cycle is, yeah, you are very unlikely to push valuations higher, but until you get to the point where inflation is really, you know, systemic and and gets fast enough that businesses can't keep raising final good prices enough to keep up with their input prices and margins start to come under pressure, which I think will happen, but it's, it's probably, you know, five years down the road. Until you get to that point, the equity market's likely to hold its relatively rich valuation. Um, remember, the Fed, the government's not going willing, to be willing to let go of rates that quickly either. They're going up, but, you know, they're going to fight back as much as they can, financial repression type stuff. But the earnings growth will accelerate. Right. And so the equity market will still perform pretty well, but it'll be performed differently. You know, as I said, this whole tech dominating the screens like, you know, and, and returns, like what happened in the tens is, is highly unlikely. So, you know, the cyclical equities, um, and the consumers of that technology will be healthcare companies that margins contracted for 30 years, integration of technology into the delivery of healthcare services was not existent, go into your doctor's office and see Manila file folders. Right. So, you know, now telemedicine. This was the pandemic in a lot of ways was a um, positive productivity shock. It'll drive technology into healthcare. It already caused, I mean, it was already true. E-commerce was already picking up market share at an exponential rate before the crisis. Then the market share of e-commerce relative to uh, general merchandise gapped three points higher, right? So there's that element. Then there's using more technology and industrials and industrial manufacturing. So those are all the, the sort of the beneficiaries of of uh, this technology boom that we've had, and this realization that you can do a lot of things sitting at home.
1: Yeah, we're in yep. Vale,
0: Colorado, right? Yeah, so,
1: or yeah, little no weeds, right? So, yeah, right. So yeah.
0: you know, I, I think that there's still a decent story to be told for the equity market overall, um, but policies right. policies really more of a risk than a. Um, you Know a panacea
1: is the late 60s uh, was something. also the era of the nifty 50, if memory serves, right? Right, what's uh, do we are we going to get something like that now, or have we already? With uh,
0: you know, in such? some ways, I suppose you could argue we already had that, and,
1: and yeah, the um, fangs, yeah,
0: right, and mm-hmm. uh, and that'll start to, to mitigate, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I that's certainly possible later in the cycle where breath would narrow further and further. Um, there's been more to the story during the recovery than just tech, right? I mean, we had the Um, mania around tech in July and August. But then, as I said, since the beginning of July, industrials have outperformed uh, the tech sector by a lot, you know? Mm, So mm. it does look like a classic recovery. Small caps are 40% above the S&P from the lows. Right, right, right. That's sort of typical too. And, you know, people push back and said, no, this doesn't look like a cyclical, typical cyclical recovery. But when you look Mm. at the group action, it really does. Um, Mm.
1: Very interesting. All right. uh, Barry Knapp, thank you so much again for rejoining uh, the Contrarian Investor podcast. I'll let you get back to uh, your canine friend there. In closing, maybe let's uh, just remind uh, listeners where they can find you. I will of course put this in the show notes as well.
0: Sure. Um, Barry Knapp Ironside's macroeconomics. So the research website is HTTP p.s. Uh, ironsidesmacro.substack.com. Um, I do have a my own podcast that goes out on Monday mornings. That's a bit of a summary of my weekly research note. Um, so you can, uh, you know, you can subscribe to the research. Um, if you're an institutional investor, you can uh, onboard me to your research platform. And I also have a um, uh, consulting agreement or relationship with a derivative broker-dealer called Macro Risk Advisors, where we've been creating some joint products and ideas. And um, for clients out there who still pay for research with trading commissions, you can uh, get in touch with Macro Risk Advisors and get access to my work that way, too.
1: Cool. And then you, you um, regularly are on CNBC and other TV channels as well, right?
0: I I am indeed um, some seventy or seventy five appearances nice. a year. I'm on uh, Squawk Box when I have to get up awfully early out here in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm a regular guest on uh, Kelly Evans show though she's now on maternity leave. But the Exchange at one o'clock on uh, afternoons, right. and uh, a couple of the Bloomberg shows, John Farrow's show at nine o'clock, and um, Alex uh, Steele show at, sure. uh, at 10
1: a.m. New York Nice, time. nice. And then, sure. of course, Twitter, too. Is it, uh, what's your, is it Barry Knapp? My
0: handle is at Barry Knapp, right? Yeah. There's,
1: no, yeah. um, there's no anonymity to it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, mine's Nat yeah. Baker, so very simple. Right. Cool, Matt. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time.